I'm so glad to be here today. It's February, and I'm alive in the earth and upright. When Pastor Jesse called me, in fact, I wasn't sure uh, before God my responsibility. Because I watch the calendar these days and don't want to plan for things that aren't necessary to plan. But I knew in my heart where I wanted to be on February the 4th, and God is good. Yes, I knew Pastor Jesse when there was little hope. I loved him then. I love him today. He's been trained up. He married up. And I'm so glad that he's your pastor. It's a privilege today to borrow this podium. And I look so forward to diving into God's Word with you. Our team is Eden Grace. She has graduated from college last spring, just weeks after I began this valley of the shadows of death. And uh, just days later, I had the privilege to watch her graduate and complete this journey in her life that she believed that God brought her to. And she went on staff with Focus Evangelistic Ministries the following day. Now, that's really... um, a very minimal way of saying that because she's been on staff with our ministry all her life. I met with her uh, in the fall before graduation. I told her, well, it's time that we formalize, that we actually finalize your decision about where you'll be next year because we're actually already receiving some earmarked uh, gifts towards you, for you, for your support. And she looked at me in that coffee shop and said, Daddy, this is all I've ever wanted to do. (laughs) Because God's been good. So now she drives me thousands of miles. And yesterday, she rolled into Tampa behind the wheel, bringing me here. And it's so good for us to be here together again. So thankful to God today. I want to pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, thanks so much for your goodness and the grace that bought us. Lord, you're all there is. You're the highest thought we've ever had. You're our reason. And in you today, we live and move and have our being and we give you praise. God, we thank you that the world that we're living in today is not our home. That we're on borrowed time here. This world will pass away and everything in it. And so I pray in these moments, Lord, that we cast aside this world in our own vision of our own future, of our tomorrows, of what we're going to do. And Lord, I pray that we look for that coming kingdom of God, and later the eternal state. And Lord, that we make our decisions today in this world based on the fact that we'll be in that world with you because of the mercies of God that bought us at the cross. God, in our little parentheses that represents our lives, I pray that we choose well 
That God today, each of us, when we leave this service, can say, I have something to do with the gospel of Christ. And I want as many people as I can personally do something for them to have a clear understanding of it. Lord, help us redeem this time for the days are evil, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'm going to do something very challenging for me today. Now, I love to dive down into the Word and take verses apart and take apart the words and go to the Greek and put things in order and unpack things and then put it all back together. So we have this really good verse-by-verse study of the Word. I love doing that. Today, I'm not doing that with you. Today is where we back up and get a a bird's eye view of the Word of God. Maybe you'll leave here today understanding more about the Bible than you've ever known before when we do this. Because in order to understand the thing, sometimes we get out a microscope and we, we bore down into the thing. And it's helpful to run that focus knob up and down. Have you ever done this in a lab? Not, you ought to go to eBay and buy yourself a used microscope, very helpful. Run that focus knob down and run it back and see the thing blown up and see the thing from far away. Now, when I was at the University of Georgia, they told us that the longer that we were there, that we would learn more and more about less and less. Can you imagine that as we worked our way into that that Uh, chosen major of study and the emphases inside that we'd learn more and more about less and less. Well, some of the students in my program carried that to the ultimate extreme. And we said, "Okay, so by the time we graduate, we'll know all there is to know about nothing. (laughs) Well, that's not what we're going to do today. We're not going to use a microscope today and go verse by verse through the Bible, which is what I love to do. But today we back up and we get a bird's eye view of the conflict of the ages. And I think this will cause a lot of things to fall into place in our understanding about the Bible and about where we are right now in the world. I believe that God can reveal himself with a microscope or a telescope. Amen. Now today, the way that you'll study this conflict of the ages will be through a broad field telescope. So let's begin then at the beginning. God's creation. Would you meet me then in John uh, Genesis in chapter one, first verse of the Bible. God makes clear his creation in the world. We've. We have completely fallen away. We have pastors behind podiums today. There's a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, who has completely disallowed the creation of God by God. Somehow goes to great extremes to announce that he still is on God's side, but I don't know how anyone could ever figure that to be true. The beginning of it all was in the one who is the Alpha. He's the Alpha. And he spoke a universe into existence. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Amen. This is the beginning. In the beginning. 
when God created a universe. Now, God is going to cap off that creation by the creation of man. He made Adam from the dust of the ground. And then he put Adam into the garden that God had spiked. The word is, is that God spiked Adam into that garden. God grew the garden. And then he took man that he created outside the garden and put the man in the garden and called the whole thing delightful. That's what the word Eden means. Man, man had himself a garden of God's delight in which to dwell. Is that good? Is that good? Uh, you're not convincing. Is that good? Is it, has God been good in the creation of a universe? And that God would, would then create Adam outside and then, and then build a garden. And then take the man and put him into the garden and name it delightful. This is so awesome. And this is the first glimpse we get of God. He's God the creator. In the beginning. And then Satan, the enemy of God, created by God for great purposes, somehow found a way that he could cause destruction in the very garden of God's delight that would impact the whole universe. And now we have man's fall, Genesis chapter 2. Would you meet me and let's look together at verse number 17. Genesis two seventeen. Here we go. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now the word die here means separation. Death never means cessation. Death never means stop. Death means separation. Well, separation requires that there are two. Death means man's separation from the God that created him. And the way that you will experience this separation, says God, to his created man, is that you eat from that tree that I'm forbidding you. But in the very day that you eat from that tree, your disobedience will cost you a separation. And so this is how Satan then can... Begin his destructive effort is that somehow if he could get into the mind of the man and cause the man to imbibe that forbidden fruit, that he can get man separated from man's creator. And so now we have the creation of God. Now we have Satan's destruction right there in the bed of the creation of the universe. Would you look with me at Isaiah in chapter 14. Isaiah 14 in your Bible. Let's get a glimpse of this enemy of God and the enemy of man. You see, in order to get at God, Satan has a channel through man. Because frankly, Satan can't touch God, can he? But there is the weaker, there is the, crea uh, the creation, there's the one who has linkage with God. And Satan believed that he was not invincible as God the Creator is. Satan believed that he had a shot with the man, and he did. 
Would you look with me, Isaiah chapter 14 now, and pick it up in verse number 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? And I want to pause at the end of verse 12 and invite you to use a marker, a pen, pencil, burnt piece of wood, bloody finger... Use something to mark these verbs in your Bible. This is the action of Satan. Okay, now we just covered the first thing that needs an underline in your Bible. Three words from the end is the word weaken. This is his activity in the world to weaken. To weaken what? The nations. Weaken the nations. Now, the word nations in the Bible is often... A Greek word, ethnos, we get the word in the English, ethnic, it's an ethnic, it means races, it means races. And the word nations in the Bible is referring to the people, people of all kinds. It's a great word because we get this word used in the end of it all when the nations are bringing their glory into the kingdom of God. Is that good? Is that good? All the people will be singing together. All the people will be praising God in the end. But we also have it here that all the ethnic groups, all the races, all the people were weakened by this enemy of God who made a way to get into the mind of man way back in the heartbed of civilization in the garden of God's delight. Do you think that if that devil could get into the mind of Adam and Eve in that place, in that time, that he could get into the mind of a man today? Now back to verse 13. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. There's the first I will of five I wills. Number two, I will exalt my throne. There's another underline, exalt my throne. That's a verb, exalt my throne. He's going to weaken the nations and he's going to exalt his own throne above the stars of God. Where's his throne going if he gets what he wishes? Above God. He's going to be above God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. He's going up. His dream is to be up. He's going to have a special place. He's going to have a special reference. His place will be above the place of God in the north. That right there is enough for me to want to locate in the south. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. There was another verb. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee saying, this is a quote, is this the man? That's what people will say. In the end of his day, when he has done all the discouragement, when he's done all the deconstruction, when he's done the weakening of the nations, and when he's done in his attempt to exalt himself above the stars of God, when he's done with it all, and people see him for who he always really was, they will say something about this destroyer. 
They will say something about him. It's here. Is this the man? That's what they say. And when they say it, they speak it with their lips, but their eyes are narrowed. Could you practice that just for a moment? Would you narrow your eyes? Why do we look with narrowed eyes? Because somehow it helps us to view something in detail. They're squinting at the destroyer. In the end of it all, and what they see through their squinted eyes leaves them to make a remark. That's him? Watch. He's the guy! He's the one who weakened the nations. He's the one who did all that destruction. He's the one who burnt the cities up. That's the guy. Well, the answer is, yeah, that was him. But isn't it amazing that someone that looks like that in the final day could have done all that damage? Well, he could have done all that damage because he got into the mind of a man in the very beginning. And he's been getting into the minds of men the whole story of the earth. Hmm? And he's still doing that today in front of our very eyes. Now, getting into the minds of people. Confusing the minds of people away from God. Trying to cause more separation between God and His creation. Verse 17, that made the world as a wilderness. If you don't understand that line, it's because you didn't watch the news this morning. And destroyed the cities thereof that opened not the house of his prisoners. You see, that's his goal for you and me. Put us in a prison and never let us out. Ultimate separation from God forever. He's good at locking that door. He's horrible at defeating God. He never lets his prisoners out. He encloses them, but he never lets them out. But now, do you think God will allow that? Oh, no, God breaks down the walls of the prison. Amen. So if you're taking notes, you're on number three now. One is God's creation. Two is man's fall. Three is God's redemption in the world. Amen. This is where I come head to head with my challenge that I spoke of a moment ago. I told you this will be hard for me because, man, I want to I want to see God's redemption on number three in my notes. And I want to just lock down right there. Spend the rest of the day on that one. God's redemption. We can't spend all day. There is lunch scheduled somewhere. But let's spend a moment in God's redemption. Would you meet me way in the back of your Bible? Hebrews and chapter 1. Hebrews and chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 now in verse 1. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, Hebrews 1.1 reveals to us the heart of God. God's a communicator. God wants to be in man's mind. If the devil is trying to turn the lights off, 
God always is turning them on. God is always communicating. We call His Son the Word. Amen? The word Word means the thought, the communication. And God now has, as He always did, has been revealing truth to man. But the ultimate expression of God's truth was when God sent the Word into the world. The, the thought that God wanted in the mind of man was best expressed in His Son in the world. This is God's redemption plan. It's called Plan Jesus. Amen. He at sundry times and diverse manners or ways spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Amen. Nothing could be greater, no form could be higher of God's revelation than the revealing of Jesus Christ, verse 2 in the middle, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. Three, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. You notice I read that phrase by phrase. That's because those three verses are just absolute powerhouses. Of the description of God in retrospect about God's redemption plan carried out by Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things. What I'm telling you is He owns it all. Signed over to Him by God the Father. He is the creator of all those things that He owns. He made it all. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. Do y'all still say amen here? <clears throat> Says he's the brightness of his glory. You see, you know that man can't look on God. You understand this. You understand Moses' dilemma. He wanted so much to get a peek. And yet God knew, I, I can't do that, Moses, for you. It, it, it destroy you. So he put him in a crack in the rock and he told him, hide your eyes till I say you can look. And you'll be able to catch a glimpse at my hinder part and see the glory, but you can't see the whole thing. It'll knock your eyes out. Well, God has shown Himself in the world. To the eyeballs of man, God revealed it in this redemption plan when Jesus came. He's the brightness of the glory of God. John said, we saw Him in His glory, full of truth and grace. Now catch this last phrase. After express image of his person, after upholding all things by the word of his power. What that phrase is telling you, upholding all things by the word of his power. If Jesus, if Jesus takes his eyes off the wheel, the whole universe comes unglued. Because the Bible teaches very clearly, Colossians 1.16, he's the glue that holds everything together. Now, that would be enough to do, wouldn't it? But now God the Father calls on God the Son to carry out the role of Redeemer in the world. Where God will go to bat in the, 
in the person of Jesus Christ for all the people who struck out on their own watch. He now goes to bat for us and carries out God's redemption. And look what he did here. He by himself purged our sins. It means to cast out without delay. That's what he did. He cast our sin out without delay. And it took a bloody cross to get the job done. But God's been good. And Jesus Christ faced the cross, embraced the cross, carried the cross, died on the cross to pay for your sin and mine because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Can you put this in context now of the other things that we've established from the Bible? The creation of God, the fall of man, and now the redemption of God again in the world. Let... um, Hebrews chapter 1 go now. And would you turn back to Luke chapter 19. Does the Bible say clearly why Jesus came into the world? Well, yes, it does. And a number of times we get God explaining to us precisely why Jesus came. There were other purposes, but Jesus described it best himself to that wee little man, Zacchaeus. Remember, too short to see Jesus, so he climbed a tree. And it was to Zacchaeus that Luke 19 clearly expresses precisely why the Son of God, the express image of the person of God, would come into the world. Luke 19 now, verse number 9. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. You want it in a nutshell why God would take the trouble to take on a human skin? Why God, who is spirit, would take on flesh that would be full of nerve endings? He would take on a body that you would have to feed it. You'll have to water it. It's going to get tired, dirty feet, dusty roads, and dying on a cross. Why would you ever take a skin? Because God has known before there was a beginning that He would carry out a redemption plan. God knew all along that He was going to die, that that our sin would be paid not by silver and gold, Peter said to us, Not by silver and gold that perishes, but by the precious blood of a lamb without blemish, foreordained by God, that would be carried out before there was an earth. Amen. That's good. That's good. So he's come to seek and to save that which was lost. Then Jesus has been looking for me because I certainly was lost. Amen. And friend, he was looking for you too. Not that he didn't know where you were, but you didn't know where he was. And he wanted the separation to be done away between you and God. And so Jesus carries out a redemption plan. Would you look with me at John over to the right a bit? John chapter 1 and verse 29. Here's the forerunner sent before Jesus would be born. John, actually a relative of Jesus in the flesh, is on the march. He's revealing. He's preparing. 
For when Jesus Christ himself, the Redeemer, will make a showing. John 1 now, verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That's why he came. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Now John, his forerunner, said he came to be the Lamb of God. He came to take away the sin of the world. And what Satan, the father of lies, in the beginning of sin in the creation of God, began in that garden with a lie into the mind of a man. Jesus now has squashed the ultimate end of those who've tasted the death offered in the garden. And when Jesus Christ comes to do His job as the Redeemer, He takes away the sin of the world. We never had that until Jesus came. Yeah, Freddie, they were always making those blood sacrifices. We, we believe there's no remission without, without blood, Freddie. And they've always been making those blood sacrifices. There were, there were thousands of animals every year dripping their blood on the ground. Yeah, but not a one of those ever satisfied God over the payment for our sin. Any animal can be bleed, but only the Lamb of God can enter into the tabernacle of God in heaven before God. Do you understand this in the Bible? When Jesus Christ died, He descended and He ascended. And Jesus Christ entered in the tabernacle in heaven... That was not made by man. It was built by God. The one that was made by man was in the earth. It was a model taken from the real one made by God in heaven. And it's that one. Jesus didn't, didn't care to go into Moses' tabernacle to leave a blood sacrifice. Jesus Christ went into the tabernacle of his Father in heaven and flicked his fingers over the mercy seat in heaven before the eyes of holy God. And now there is blood glistening on gold that shows that what was a barrier has been torn down. There's blood on the mercy seat of God. And therefore the separation for those who come in through the veil of the flesh of Jesus will be before God united as one. We call it the atonement of Jesus Break that word down, you get the meaning. The atonement is the at one meant. Is that good? That good? And that's the redemptive effort of Jesus Christ paying out for everyone who go in through Him. Jesus did not simply only come to complete the salvation plan. Jesus also came to make disciples. He gathered them to himself. They were very plain, ordinary people. All jokes aside, they really were a bunch of people that you would never expect to have any success at all with God. Ragtag wouldn't begin to describe them. But he gave a call to the disciples. Number three in your notes is God's redemption in Christ. Number four then, the call... Of the disciples. Do you see this then? That God makes a move. Satan makes a move. God makes a counter move. And Satan gets ready to do something damaging again. 
If you look at the history of man in the world, or as I've chosen to call it today, the conflict of the ages, it's very much like a chess match or a checkerboard. God moves, Satan moves. He's always trying to counteract. He's always trying to move, to destroy, to destruct. And the lesson hasn't been learned yet. That you could call it off now because you're the lesser, he's the greater. He's all there is. But Jesus now makes a move. He not only accomplishes the salvation of people who will enter into heaven through His blood, by grace, through faith. But now He's going to call disciples to Himself. He's going to give them training of a lifetime about how to carry the message of the gospel onward. Because Jesus is going back to the right hand of the Father. Amen. Bring that prince home to the Father, His King. Amen. But Jesus, who is going away, promised His disciples, I'm going away, but I'll prepare a place for you, and I'll come again and get you. But while I'm gone, the Holy Spirit will be with you, and your training is solid. I have a job for you. We sometimes refer to that as the Great Commission, but Jesus believed in discipleship. He believed in reproducing reproducers. And somehow then in the mind of God from the very beginning was that God wanted to carry this onwards. And that's where you and I ultimately will come into the picture as believers in Jesus. That we become a part of this great plan of God to reach the nations. And it's an astounding thing. It's a shocking thing that God could use mere people whose minds are so subject to be muddled by a devil that God somehow could use them to accomplish the eternal purposes of God for union of holy and sinner together. Boy, that I could be used by God is a shocking thing. How often do I go into a place and even as I walk, I say, God, what am I doing going there today? Let's look at the disciples' call. Would you meet me in the book of Mark now, chapter 16, Mark 16. Nearing the end now of Jesus' life, Jesus says very precisely to them what this is all going to be about in their future. This is what their preparation has been about. Mark 16 now and verse 14. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Isn't that a marvelous statement about man's susceptibility to fall down? Just when you put your hope in man and you say, wow, look at Adam. Woo-wee, Adam, woo. You're walking and talking with God in the garden of God's delight in the coolness of the evening. Woo, look what a woman God gave you. Adam, you got to name dinosaurs. Adam, whoa, we're expecting a lot from you. And he trades everything in for a bite of fruit. 
Just when it looked so great. Wow, look at those disciples. They've been out there with Jesus three, three and a half years. He's been training them all the scriptures. Man, he just unscrewed the top of their head and poured it all in. They've been on the fishing boat. They've been in the storm. They saw Peter walk on water. Woo, we're all set for glory now. Those disciples, man, they're going to rock it for God. He's about to go to the cross and die. The training is almost over now. And he finds the need to catch them while they eat supper. And he upbraids them for their lack of faith. They didn't believe him when he rose from the dead. They're the hope of heaven in the world. They didn't even believe him when he rose from the dead. It's like Peter. Boy, they were praying, all the disciples, they're praying, God, get Peter out of prison. Lord, how'd he even get in there? God, were you asleep? But will you deliver Peter from prison? Angel goes in. Peter's asleep in the jail. He's so sound asleep that the angel sent to deliver him had to, had to bip him in the ribs just to wake him up. He's like, wake up, boy. Peter couldn't figure it out. He didn't know what he's doing. He's outside the prison now and he's sleepwalking him all the way to the house of the believers where they've been praying, God, deliver Peter. We got to get him out of jail. Lord, we can't do anything without Peter. We got to have Peter. They say, who is it? Rhoda said, uh, uh, somebody out there says he's Peter. They thought it was a ghost. Y'all, what you been praying for? A ghost? Man is so subject to be muddled by a confusing devil. Verse 15, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Is that good? That good? That's putting it in a nutshell right there, boys. That's what it's all about is I'm training you to go everywhere and preach the good news about God's redemption plan. Is that good? You think that's good? You think it's a good plan? If God comes up with this plan, hey, if Jesus became a human to try and reach humans, well, let's get some more humans to reach other humans with the gospel. That'd be better than rainbow letters written in the clouds, wouldn't it? That'd be better than that God would, he'd have this gospel plant that grows everywhere, all over the world. The gospel plant comes up like a weed and every leaf on the gospel bush has a gospel verse written on it. Wouldn't that be cool? Man, I mean, I'd love to grow some. I'd have a whole row of them in the garden. It's great. It's not best, though, God thought, or He would have done it that way. What God thought was best was, you, you take that gospel message, you put it into the minds of people who've been saved by the announcement of that gospel. And you give it to the ones who've benefited from it the most. Tell them to go reach some others with it. That's a great plan. But every time we get excited about man and what man can pull off, we find out that man face plants, huh? So what's going to be next in this chain of history? Well, if we've learned anything, it's this. If man is involved, if man is involved, it could all blow up. Why is that true? Because man's not like God. 
Even saved people still have a flesh. You ever heard anything about that around here? Even saved people have this dual nature that they're liable to go the spiritual way and they're liable to go the way of the flesh at any given moment. So it's an adventure worth paying attention to. If man has anything to do with it, yeah, it could come to fail. Absolutely. Let's look at a couple of scriptures here. Would you look with me, leave Mark chapter 16. Would you go to 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. Paul the Apostle then writes this to saved people. This is Paul giving us a nutshell of what this is all about as we go forward with God in this plan of God to reach the nations with the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, pick it up, verse number 19. He says, to wit... That is, I want you to have this wisdom that God was in Christ reconciling. That means to make two into one, reconciling the world unto himself. That's removing the barrier of separation. Amen. Not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto... Who who, who was it committed to? Us. Those who believed in the Redeemer. We were committed this message. We were given this thing. We were, we were the holders of this body of truth that we call the gospel. And Paul writes this to believers then that God has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. The communication that God wants unsaved people to have. He's now committed it to people. Verse 20. Now then, we, we. The us of verse 19 is the we of verse 20. We are ambassadors For Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. So hey, you got a job to do, believer. God has included you in His long plan to reach the nations. It's your watch now. So could I privately just give you a jab, Peter, in the ribs and say, hey, what you doing about that? What have you done with your preparation? What have you done in your moment? In the plan of God to carry on that gospel. Are you, are you busy with it? Are, are you a support? You're not dead weight, are you? You're not a ball and chain on the leg of those who are trying to carry out this plan. To carry the gospel to the nations. You're, you're not the person causing your pastor to spend his time with a bucket of water. Trying to put out fires in the church that were caused by the people of God. No, I'm not accusing anyone in that. I'm just telling you my eyes see it all the time. Because wherever people are involved, a devil can get into their mind and muddy up everything and cause all kinds of problems. But your pastor should be cut free. He should be cut free to do the work of an evangelist, to participate in this plan of God, to keep that gospel marching to those who don't know it, and to train those who have believed it, so that ultimately we all are working together to reproduce more reproducers. This is how you go from a ministry of addition, which means to add them one by one, to a ministry of multiplication, where everyone you reach is also now helping you reach. That's where you want to go, church. But you can't get there if your pastor's always putting out fires caused by the children of God who neglected, who lost their way, took their eye off the ball, 
munching on a cheap piece of fruit of something rather than participating with God. So number four, we have the disciples call. What's going to be next? Well, if man's involved, there's potential for failure. And then we all have a flesh. Even on our best day, there's a flesh that could betray us. Would you look with me? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, just over a few pages in your Bible. It's a very quick jog to there, and it'll be worth the trip. Second Corinthians 11. Here's what can happen. There is a false preacher preaching a false gospel. And those false prophets never in the Bible identify themselves. I mean, they're not name tags. They don't come into your town or, frankly, into your church wearing a top hat and carrying a a cane going, and I'm a false prophet today. Hey! I mean, they're good-looking guys. They speak well with silver tongues. Sometimes they look the part. They got degrees. They got it all. Including the bank account. And people still write the checks for that false prophet. He's on television right now on the Christian channel. Boy, we better put our antenna up and tune into a station of God to keep our mind from being muddled because it can happen. And if you're that devil, that devil who was in the beginning in that garden, who has had great success, that sometimes has made man his plaything. And if you're in the world today, let me tell you what number one target must be. If we understand anything about human nature and history, we should understand this very easily, that the number one target is the preacher. If you can model his mind, how will he help you accomplish your goal to weaken the nations, to destroy the world? Pray for the preachers, everybody. God help them to stand. 2 Corinthians 11, you're there, verse 13, here we go. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. What I'm telling you is they look like the real deal. They look like Jesus' guys. You can't always go by looks, can you? Sometimes you have to look a wolf in the mouth and see what the teaching says. Verse 14, and no marvel. That the apostles of Satan look like they ought to be apostles of Jesus. Paul says, it's no marvel. Don't be surprised. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, that's Satan's ministers, also be transformed as the ministers of what? What? Of righteousness. Whose end shall be according to their works. Now, anyone whose end is according to their works, that's a lost person, ladies and gentlemen. That's a description of a lost person. So are you telling me there are lost people today who are posing as the apostles of Christ? Absolutely. Actually, I'm not telling you that. I think the Bible said it very clearly. I just need to read it. Amen. They're false people. Please beware, friend. Of who you allow in your mind to speak for God. 
the disciples made disciples. They carried out their job. They went through with their training. But if you study church history, it didn't take very long for the disciples of the disciples of the disciples to begin to lose their way with the gospel. So that by the year 1400, the church was an ugly mess. The church had absolutely fumbled the ball of carrying a pure gospel into the ends of the earth. Let me describe this for you. Now, it's called church. The word means general. That word today means Catholic. The word general today means Catholic. And that church, the general church, was spewing lies into the world. Here's what was happening. Just a couple of high spots. They had invented something called indulgences. They had introduced the idea into the churches that, well, you're a sinner and, well, you need to pay God off and I'm the agent of God. So if you want to pay God something for your sin, just put it in my hand. I'll make sure it gets where it's going. That, that literally you could buy your sins away. They invented something called purgatory. Purgatory. It's an invention of man. After having his mind put into the blender of a devil. Well, your Uncle Bob, who died six months ago, yeah, poor Uncle Bob. Well, he wasn't good enough to go to heaven. Now, that's a lie. The, the implication is that someone is good enough to go. We don't have that person. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uncle Bob wasn't good enough to go to heaven, goes the story. But he wasn't bad enough to go to hell. There's another little lie. Bad people don't go to hell, else we'd all be there. Unbelievers go to hell. And if Bob was an unbeliever, there's no money in the world that could buy him out of where he is. But he's not in purgatory because there's no such place. It's called authority bias. Authority bias is the idea that you believe someone because they seem to be a person of authority. But let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Just because somebody's wearing a white, white lab coat, got a stethoscope around their neck, I'm not going to believe them what they tell me about my cancer. You better have more than the look before I'm going to believe what you're telling me. That's where I've come to in my own journey. Hmm? Authority bias. It works. But it's a shame because we already have enough problems trying to keep a devil out of our heads. But the lie went, Uncle Bob, he's kind of stuck in a middle place, but I hold the keys to purgatory. You put the money down, I'll pray Uncle Bob out of purgatory and right into heaven. You just make that little tin box over there jingle with some coinage and I'll take care of your problems with God. No, sir, buddy, I already have a Redeemer Amen. who paid more than coinage for my sin and I'll go to heaven on what he did for me. Is that good? But we didn't have people telling the priest that. The people, in fact, had little education. Most of them couldn't even read. And even if they could read, they didn't have a Bible in their own language. The priests were laughing all the way to the bank. Frankly, that's where the church had gone to by the 1400s. 
They were enriching themselves. And then there came the reformers. Now that's what we call them today. They were people who weren't out to destroy the church, but they simply wanted to fix what was wrong in the church. Let me name a couple of names. There was one named Zwingli. There was one named Martin Luther. There was one named John Calvin, John Huss. A lot of names. And I commend these men for what they did in showing the Bible and in attempting to undo the damage that the church was doing. I commend them for what they did to cause people to see the errors of the church. But they called them reformers. But they didn't go far enough. Some of them spoke from both sides of their mouth. They might say, faith alone today and tomorrow they're teaching water baptism as a requirement for salvation. So they were very incomplete in their work, but I give them commendation that's due to them. And it was birthed into the world what today in your town is called Reformed Theology. Now just to hear that word, uh, reformed theology. Doesn't that make you want to sign on with that? I mean, who wants deformed <laughs> theology? That's what you'd be left with, right? That'd be the alternative. Yeah, but reformed. That's who I am. I'm not in that deformed group. So, what is reformed theology? Reformed theology is simply the theology of those reformers in the 1500s who were the best Catholics in the world, but who still really struggled to understand the simplicity of the gospel message, Reformed theology. Now today, you probably will hear the word Calvinism. That's a set of beliefs cobbled together by people who adored the reformer John Calvin. So Calvinism died about 500 years ago, it was very cold, it was very brutal, died, but it's making a showing today, Calvinism, Calvinism is the idea that you, you're so far from God, you, you, you can't think about God, make judgments about God, seek God, you, you can't believe for you to be saved, God has to zap you, and when a baby's born, God already decided either that baby is zapped or that baby's going to hell. God decided that, so that's what God's sovereignty means. I'm giving you a nutshell here. There's more, and it'll turn your stomach. No chance. God already picked it. And that, in fact, because God's not picked everybody, Jesus didn't die for everyone either, says the modern Calvinist. It's called limited atonement. He only made that at one payment for a few people. That he zapped with faith and made them believe because they didn't have a choice and he's going to force them to go to heaven. But don't you worry if you're going to hell because you're going to hell for the glory of God. Does that make you feel any better about Calvinism? Then there's another brand today. It's called Armenianism. Armenianism. Armenianism comes from a man named Joseph Arminius. Joseph Arminius. And 
denominations today across the world are, are fairly split down the middle. There are the Calvinists denominations over there and the Armenian denominations there. And I don't even want to talk about denominations because that's not the subject today. But I do want to tell you this. So these two are theological enemies, right? That's what every seminary in America thinks. Maybe I spoke too soon because I don't know all of them, but uh, I'll say predominantly the thought in seminaries that are training tomorrow's preachers, they think that, that there are two camps. There's the Calvinist camp and there's the Armenian camp, and you must belong to one or the other, and that you're at battle with the other. You are theological enemies. Is that true? Absolutely not. In fact, the two hatched from eggs under the same mother hen. They all were reformers. They all were involved in the attempted reformation of the general church. They're not far apart at all. And even then weren't. And today, they practically live in the same home together. Here's why. Today, the brand of theology known as Arminianism will say, in order to be saved, it takes faith in Christ plus works. Faith plus works. How many of you believe that way? Okay, you're undecided. It's okay. That's the message of the Armenian. Faith plus works. So here comes the message of the Calvinists. Remember, they're supposed to be bloody theological enemies. But the Calvinist comes along and says, no, no, it's not faith plus works. It's faith that works. So you're saved by faith alone, but nobody's going to know it, not even God, until you add works to your faith. Otherwise, your faith doesn't even count if it's your faith to begin with, because it has to be God's faith. How do you know the difference? We don't. But it takes works anyway. So this is what we call backloading works into the gospel. Sounds like something a devil would think up. Don't you agree? So faith plus works is front-loading the gospel. Faith that works is backloading the gospel. Either one of them is salvation by works. And God's not happy with that. But this is precisely what would make a devil happy. Who wants to muddle the minds of the preachers. And he'll do a hundredfold damage. If he can reach the preachers. So they are friends in theology in this friend. They both teach something that I will term here. Lordship salvation. Now, there are some people who are lordship salvationists who would not like me using that term. And if that's who you are, won't you know, I'm not trying to disrespect you in this. I'm not trying to name call you. It's just what we know you as. If you'd prefer to call it commitment, salvation, we'll call it anything. But I just know what it says. And here's what the message that I'm referring to as lordship salvation says. That believing in Jesus is not what saves you. You must have faith, but you also must make Jesus the Lord of your life. Another phrase for that would be, you must enthrone Jesus on the throne of your heart. Is there anybody who understands what that possibly could mean in real life? And so many cliches and so many muddy gospel presentations that use these kinds of phrases 
But it's all about being saved by something besides believing in Jesus. But wherever man is, expect it to blow up. I wouldn't want to be a Lordship Salvationist. Who shows up at the gate of heaven. Trying to tell God the Father why. I believe that it would take more than believing in your son. Who you made the heir of the worlds. Who is the creator of the universe. Who was father the express image of God. Who was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Who was the lamb of God. Who shed his blood to pay for my sin, not by silver and gold. But God, I figured I would just pay it by good works and lawful obedience. I figured Jesus couldn't handle it on his own. That's easy believism. But I figured I needed to add my efforts to what Jesus was trying to do. I wouldn't want to be you, friend. Please change your mind about lordship, salvation, commitment, salvation. Whatever the message is, if it involves what your work is, if it involves some obedience on your part, it's tainted. It's tainted. And you've done away with the message that God gave us in the world. Are these messages about trusting in Christ? Well, then accept it. Because that's what the Bible says. Doesn't everybody know that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life? Wasn't that the message of Jesus to Nicodemus that whosoever believeth in Him? And did you see John 4, one chapter later than John 3, another person this one, we don't know her name. We call her the woman at the well, but she had a lot of baggage. And Jesus looked at her in John 4, 14 and says that being saved into eternal life was as easy as taking a drink of water. You remember what he told her? Crystal clear. You know, he went back and told her to turn from all her sins, right? And she's got to go find all these husbands of hers and get everything straightened out. Are you, are, are you catching my dripping sarcasm here? He never got mad at her. He never called her any sinner names. He just gave her pure grace and mercy there at that well. And told her that whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Because the water that I'll give you, ma'am, will be in you a well of water. Springing up into everlasting life. Give me some of that. Amen. Amen. Church, you ought to be shouting by now. You... Here's another question to ask this message. When you, when you hear the preacher, when the evangelist goes off, ask this. Is there any assurance of eternal life in this message? And both the messages that I've put up on the board now might fly under the banner of Arminianism, faith plus works, or Calvinism, faith that works. The message that comes out of that can give no assurance at all. Here's why. Because you have to look at you. Wherever man is, expect that to blow up. But these two false gospels both teach you that you better check yourself. 
If you think you're saved, you better look at your works. One of the leading lordship salvationists a few years ago was on his deathbed, literally, with his closest friends and family around him, said this. Please pray for me that I will be holy until my last breath and thereby showing that I am saved. Does that sound like a man who lived with assurance that he was saved? He preached for like 40 years, wrote books. Some people still quote him. He believed in works salvation, though he's adored by thousands of people. That's what you get when you believe a false gospel message. It's about you and you always have to check yourself. But look, if you believe that that you have to surrender every area of your life to the obedience of Christ... You just complicated everything because now you've got to continually be checking all these areas of your life. I didn't even know there were so many areas of life. That's work salvation. And there can be no assurance because you might know, okay, I was clean this week, but you don't know what's going to happen next year. There's no assurance in the message. If there's no assurance in the message, it's not the gospel that Jesus taught the disciples that's been carried on for us today. What then is the Christian life? For those today who have gone astray, some who are just on a train that started several thousand years ago, still parroting what they were taught by reformers. If you're on that train today, what is the Christian life? And I want to tell you, is the Christian life a period of time that you're putting the finishing touches on your salvation? Do you have to kind of prove to God that you're really saved by doing good works? Is that what the Christian life is? Is the Christian life like proving time? Well, if it is, there's a lot of people we thought were saved in the Bible who've gone to hell. Because everywhere in the Bible is disobedience in the church. You have some of it here, probably. Not trying to start anything. (laughs) But wherever man is, expect there to be some blow-ups. This is the model of the Christian life we have in the Word. We got a great training. We got a pure preparation. We have all assurance in Christ that our salvation is free and eternal and already delivered to the believer. And that we are prepared then that we can go and, and have a victorious Confident service for the Lord here and in our lifetime. Is that good? that good? That's what Christian life is for. Now some people look at us who believe in free grace soteriology and say, well, you're light on sin. Well, I don't believe that. I'm not light on sin. I think sin is a heavy thing. I think sin is an awful thing and I don't want it. And I don't want it for you. It's a bad idea. It comes with bad consequences. And all sin has some form of death attached to it. Sin is horrible. I'm not light on sin. What I'm heavy on is grace. And grace is our only hope. Grace is all there is for anyone who wants everlasting life. 
Jesus Christ is our only hope. Look, friend, you may have for years been thinking because you were following a preacher whose mind was muddled over the purity of the gospel message that has done despite to the grace of Jesus Christ. That the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 pronounced judgment on them for making such a fatal error. Maybe you just followed their ways in your day. But if you've been thinking that you're checking yourself all the time to make sure that you're... If you're helping other people to follow in your own mistaken way, please take heed. Friend, you and I are dirty, rotten sinners at the core. And thank God that He loved us On the worst day of our lives, God was still pouring love out towards us. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even while we were sinners. Is that good news? Is that good news? Then that qualifies for a gospel statement. Grace is the only hope of a sinner. And we believe that we need to cast aside all the errors of the past for practically the whole church age when the disciples of the disciples of the disciples began to lose their way, began to lose their purity, began to muddy their theology and trash the gospel they had been given. That had been committed to them as ambassadors in the world of the clear gospel of Christ when they lost their way. And that train started chugging. And I'm telling you, it is a mighty engine today. But that doesn't make it any more right than Satan was right when he said, what God told you, Eve, is not really true. What you need is what I'm telling you. The father of lies is still telling his lies today. The most damaging lie is a lie That affects people's eternity. Let me be very clear about this. I've preached this message to believers. I wanted to stir you up believers. I love you so much. Love this place. Love to breathe the air with you. Appreciate so much our fellowship. But I want to give you a wake up. Because I don't know who you're listening to. I don't know what you dial up on your screen. There are a lot of fancy theologians. But I'm giving you a warning today that from the very beginning, the enemy of God has told his lies to muddle the minds of people. And if you apply logic to the question today, I think you agree with me that the number one target surely must be those who preach today. Muddy that mind and you've won a great victory that can affect dozens, hundreds, thousands of people. Be a student of the Word of God. Don't be guilty of authority bias. That you receive what a man says about the gospel because of the seat he wear, or the suit he wears or the place he went to school or whatever, anything else. Look the man in the mouth and see the words that are coming out. Do they give assurance of salvation? Because the message says that by faith alone, in Christ alone, we're saved into eternal life by grace. Through faith. If I let this hand represent you and me. And all the people in the world. God loves them all. But they all have a problem. 
Let that wallet represent sin. There we are. Friend, could that represent you this moment? There's your sin. Let that be God. He's awesome. He's holy. He's high and lifted up. He's all there is. He's the creator of all things. Who sent his son into the world to reach sinners. You see, that sin is a barrier. It's a barrier between us and God. And the wages of that sin is death. It'll cost you death. Separation from God. If you die like that with sin on you, then... Well, you'll be separated from God forever in a place called hell. And God took action. This is desperate for God because God made us that we could enjoy Him forever. We weren't made to die. The human body doesn't even know what to do with death. We weren't created to die. We just got that because we believed a lie of Satan. But God's redemption plan sent Jesus into the world. Down He came to dwell among us sinners. And the Bible said that the love of God was so great that He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Friend, you will never become the righteousness of God in you. Those who believe that they are saving themselves by their abilities are casting the anchor of their soul into the floor of their own boat. Would that anchor anything? Throw your anchor down in the floor of your own ship? No, no, you throw your anchor overboard. Throw your anchor out of yourself. Let that anchor sink down into all the mortal confusion that man spews. And let it go down to the rock of Jesus Christ. And you hook that anchor in those rocks. And you'll be bedded right there forever. Is that good if I said anything right today? Jesus took your sin. And he took it away as the bloody lamb of God dying for you. Friend, he loves you right now this minute. And you can't make him love you anymore. But would you trust in Him right now? Your sin's gone. The barrier was removed. It'll be everlasting life for you. It's called salvation by grace through faith. Would you believe Him this moment? And would you bow your head with me in this building, you and God all alone now? If a moment ago you trusted in Jesus as your hope of eternal life, you could go ahead and thank Him for that because He kept a promise for you. And I want you to grow in grace and His knowledge. I want you to hang tight, learn more, because we need you to be a part of the chain that goes all the way back to Jesus dying on a cross, that you could be a part of telling others that good news about him. God, I pray for this church. They walk in the truth and love the gospel always till you come. In Jesus' name, amen.